Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are chatting about the dangers of theonomy. So Christians we know have taken markedly different responses to the state's authority over the church, and many are asking this question, what is the relationship between God's word or his laws and culture? In other words, you know, should we seek to impose God's rules on everybody? And if we do so, what are some of the dangers of that? So we've talked about this a little bit before we've addressed the issue of theonomy on the show. So you can go back to listen to that episode as well uh, and how God's laws relate to culture. But Aaron, for this episode, can you do a recap about what theonomic thinking is? Well, fundamentally, theonomy is the belief that God's laws, so that's literally what the word means, theo or theos, God, namos, that's the word for law, God's laws, are the ultimate standard for the family, obviously for the church, for modern statecraft, in other words, for politics, for jurisprudence, and for individual conduct. I don't think there's any Christians out there that would deny that God's word, God's laws, are the standard that they are called to live by. This does not mean that we believe in salvation by works or by obedience to the law. If you read the book of Galatians, that's crystal clear that the law, obedience to the law, is incapable of justifying you. So to be crystal clear, no theonomist is suggesting that if you obey God's words perfectly, but somehow you're going to, voila, wind up in heaven. But as we live in a physical world, in a material world, theonomic thinking teaches that God's laws, again, are the standard. Now, there's lots of discussions about the specific application of those laws to statecraft, for example. So when you read Old Covenant laws, and it talks about the need to put a parapet around your house, how does that principle spill over into modern jurisprudence where my responsibility as a citizen to protect my guests from falling off the top of my roof, you know, might be uh, called into question or the principle there of protecting life, preserving life is a foundation for modern jurisprudence. If my bull is released because I have a crummy fence or I left the gate open and gores someone, what's my responsibility? So the context has changed mm -hmm. from, let's say, an ancient Near Eastern agrarian context to a modern metropolitan context, but the principles of God's law apply. Now, there's, so there's different views within the theonomous movement as to exactly how these laws apply to the modern context, but broadly speaking, again, theonomic thinking, and I'll just speak for myself here, is the belief that the laws of God, the word of God, the principles of God's word from Genesis through to Revelation, the entire corpus of scripture are to be considered when it comes to all spheres of life. So the opposite belief, so anti-theonomic thinking would be that God's laws have been abolished and so should be ignored. The opposite would be that we don't need God's laws because people innately know what law is without the Bible. They would use examples of perhaps Adam and Eve, some of their immediate descendants that were conscious of what's right and wrong in the absence of a written corpus of scripture. So some would say we don't really need the Mosaic code. We don't need old covenant law to inform modern jurisprudence or laws pertaining to marriage or the home. That's just innate. Uh, that Old Testament laws are too closely tied to ancient Near Eastern culture and therefore not applicable today. Uh, some would be, and again, these are anti-theonomic viewpoints, that 
the New Testament is only concerned about God's laws applied to believers. So they would say, well, look, God's, we don't, we don't, we have zero expectations of the godless. We have zero expectations of worldly people. What's even the point of imposing or advocating for God's laws in modern politics, for example, because the world's sort of going to hell in a handbasket anyway. What's the point? And so we just kind of ignore it. Well, I am theonomic in my viewpoint. That doesn't mean that I want to be pigeonholed with every other theonomist. I've never read Bonson. I've never read Rush Dooney. I'll be straight up. I'm probably not going to because I don't need to borrow my view of the, of what theonomy is from another person necessarily. I've read quotes from these guys, but it's just so clear to me in scripture that God's law, God's word is the basis for all spheres of life. And an example of this is in Romans 13. So where the civil magistrate is given the sword, symbolic of public justice, we've talked about this ad infinitum in our podcast, is given the sword as God's servant and deacon in the civil realm, in the political realm, in the state, as governor, to enforce justice, to reward the righteous and punish the evildoer. And so I do think that there's a lot of merits to theonomic thinking, but theonomic thinking also is dangerous to a number of people in culture. Theonomic thinking, by the way, in no way, shape, or form suggests you can earn your salvation or fix the world just by having proper laws. I'll say it again. Theonomic thinking does not claim you can earn your salvation or fix the world through proper laws, but you can certainly restrain evil, just like the state properly functioning as God's servant can restrain evil as they wield the sword. You're going to think twice about kicking in the door of a convenience store and running in and robbing the place if you know that there's going to be eight police officers waiting for you when you exit. So uh, those those that are, are I, it seems to me, and I've read various articles against a theonomic viewpoint, it seems to me that those that are opposed to th uh, a theonomic viewpoint in all of its forms, frankly, aren't even listening to what theonomists are saying. They, they are uh, just falling into the trap of saying the law has been completely abolished. It has no impact, has no effect. I believe the law has been abolished as a means of... Um, Obviously, obviously, the law, even its even in its mosaic form, was never intended to bring about salvation. Right. Yep. Uh, the law was abolished in the sense that it is it's our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of our inadequacy. The the radical grace of God is made increasingly evident under the new covenant through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the law of God is not abolished in the sense that, you know, we take Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and we just rip them out of our Bible and toss them into the circular file. Not in that sense. They serve a different, it serves a different purpose, but the principles, the word of God, pre-old covenant, old covenant, new covenant are still valid for structuring family, understanding marriage, understanding modern statecraft and the like. So, Chris, the, ba the basic premises of biblical theonomy, just follow the logic, are as follows. Number one, God is creator, and he determines the laws that govern everything. How could you possibly not agree with that? It's pretty basic. Following out of that, though, the idea is, is that if you are disobeying his laws that are supposed to determine and govern everything, then you're obeying by necessity someone else's laws, yours, some other gods, some other states, some other person. Thirdly, that every state has an ultimate authority that it appeals to. There is no such thing as an authoritatively neutral state or a spiritually neutral state. Mm -hmm. There's no state mentioned in scripture that's spiritually neutral. Egypt worshiped among many gods, the bull calf. Thus, when the people of God were in the Sinai, they made the golden calf and bowed down to it. Where did they learn that from? From the Egyptians. Moab, the Moabites worshiped Shemosh, 
The Philistines worship Baal and Dagon. You cannot name a single state through all of history that was spiritually neutral. They all have a moral, perhaps even an ecclesiastical authority that they appeal to as the basis of their decision-making. And the basic theonomistic argument is that if there's no such thing as a spiritually neutral state, which there isn't, why would you not appeal to the creator God's law word as the basis for structuring a culture, jurisprudence, the family, evaluating individual conduct? Because while they don't lead to salvation, and while they can never be perfectly obeyed in a fallen world, they, for example, preserve life. So in the United States, they just overturned Roe v. Wade. Now the pressure's on the individual states to decide their abortion laws. How could this not be considered a good thing? It makes it more difficult for mothers to kill their babies. And that's an example of where the abolishment of Roe v. Wade is fundamentally rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic and law code, which states that God created us in our mother's wombs, that from conception, life is valuable and precious. That's where that idea comes from. It doesn't come from Baal worship. It doesn't come from Dagon worship. It doesn't come from the worship of Shemosh or the bull calf in Egypt. It comes from the word of God. And as we create laws in Canada, for example, or the United States, the, the, the degree to which they are based in, grounded on, founded in, anchored to God's revealed word is going to determine whether life is going to be preserved or not, whether people can have the right to worship. So the, there's plenty of room a theon, for theonomy to stand on its own two feet doesn't require that you necessarily be able to answer and think through every single nuance of exactly how these laws and rules apply to marriage or a courtroom. But the most basic fundamental ones pertaining to worship and life and economics are there in the word of God and are only a blessing to cultures and to individuals when they're obeyed. So I, I know I've said a lot, mm -hmm. but that's kind of a recap of theonomic thinking. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned that, the the things that stood out to me, well, a lot stood out to me, but the the idea of the myth of moral neutrality, we've talked about that before. I think some of our listeners might think to themselves, it was easier to tell who the god of the society was back when they all bowed around this, this image, a bale, right? Whereas we know in some ways the god of our time is humanism, right? The, sure. the human intellect or reason, which is not as abundantly obvious, uh, in terms of people aren't bowing down to a little statue of the human brain, but they almost are with their phones or something like that. So anyways, all that to say that that point about there's no neutral thing is yeah. absolutely correct. So I'll give two examples of this just from uh, the past week. So I think it was last Sunday, the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, I'm pretty sure he's campaigning for a, a coming election because he's in small businesses, licking ice cream cones. He's, visiting factories, playing with robots. He's sitting down at story circles and talking to kids. This is, these are all examples of, um, or indicators, I should say, of pre-election campaigning. So he's in a church and he, he tweets out to the effect, you know, church is more than worshiping. It's a great place to connect and so forth and so on. I'm thinking, well, that's a very horizontal view of church. Mm -hmm. But it's also a religious claim, whether he, whether there's some truth in there or error, and I think there is a little bit of each, even though I don't trust his motives at all, there's some truth and error to that statement. It's still a moral, semi-ecclesiastical claim. Or when the high priestess of neo-paganism, Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, got up and said, you know, uh, the issue of abortion, you can kind of be pro-abortion. I don't remember her exact words, but essentially she's like, you can be pro-abortion and still maintain your faith. Hmm. She's making a religious claim. Yeah. These, these people are not spiritually neutral. If you have an opinion on whether churches should be open and closed under lockdown, whether life should be preserved in a supposed pandemic, whether babies should be 
killed or preserved in their mother's womb, whether men can marry men, women can marry women, or whether that's reserved for heterosexual monogamous relationships, those are all ethical, moral, theological questions. Mm -hmm. And governments speak to these issues all the time. We've had some very heavily laced religious bills passed in Canada over the past year and a half. There's no question about the fact that there are religious ideologies driving these decisions. I've said it before, the shape of a stop sign is a morally neutral yeah. question, unless it was a perverse shape. The, the, the decision to pave the road with asphalt or concrete is a morally neutral decision, unless somehow behind the scenes you're appealing to lobbyists who are offering an inferior product that's going to rip the taxpayer off. So there's moral, there's even moral elements to that, but this, but these, there's some decisions that Christians don't need to spend a great deal of time weighing in on, but most of the political decisions, I would say most, the majority of political decisions that are being made, even in terms of taxation and how governments respond to climate change have a theological foundation to them. I hope to do a podcast podcast on climate change, but just think about this, just to use this as an example before we move on. The ancient pagan peoples were terrified of their environment. They were terrified of death by disease, war, storms. They were terrified of the sea. And so they would offer their babies as sacrifices. They would cut themselves. They would dance around fires. They would uh, smoke and toke and eat crazy hallucinogenic mushrooms or drugs in order to appease, they perform all sorts of rituals in order to appease the gods. And they lived in a constant state of fear surrounding their, because of their environment. And they didn't, they were either ignorant of or had formally rejected the creator God who's benevolent and good and provisionary. And even when he permits us to die from disease or death, offers us resurrection, hope through Jesus. They rejected all of that. Well, it's we're more sophisticated, but you can see the modern neo-pagans, the people who are essentially of the same godless mindset, the modern pagans, the new pagans, they do the same thing. They're, they're so irrational. They're terrified of dying from disease. They're terrified of climate change. They're terrified of the world burning in forest fires. They're terrified of floodwaters rising. And instead of submitting themselves to the benevolent God of the universe that promises to protect and cherish and bless us and who provides, he even provides the principles to help us to steward the land and to steward the air and to steward our food and to steward our possessions, even within a broken world, he, he provides us with those rules. But instead of that, they live in fear. We have... We're able to steward our environment without being terrified of it. We're also able to acknowledge there are some dangers in a broken world. And even if our lives are taken because of rising sea levels or whatever, we have resurrection hope. So we, we approach things from a very different perspective. So even the fear mongering that we see from the climate change radical activists. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not opposed to good stewardship of the environment. I think it's, it's a great thing. There's, there's many things that we can, you know, we can do to, preserve our stewardship a little bit more. But a lot of these people are terrified because fundamentally they've rejected the true and living God. And this is one of the consequences of their decision. Terror that the climate, the environment is going to fall apart because this is all they have. Mm -hmm. They're just biotic beings. They're going to be born at a particular date and die. They got to save the world at all costs and there's nothing beyond this life. So your worldview even affects your science mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, it's good. So with theonomy... Uh, as we chat about that, you mentioned the title of this podcast earlier, The Dangers of Theonomy, or I guess I mentioned it. But what then is the danger of theonomy to the social order? So we're being playful, obviously, in this title. Um, there's many dangers to theonomy. First of all, it poses a threat to statists, <laughs> to those that would elevate the state and the government within a state to kingly status. In a statist worldview, the ultimate authority is the state, thus statism. Well, this is con contrary to the word of God. In Matthew 6, we read, your kingdom come, your will be done on 
earth as it is in heaven. If you agree with that verse, you're a theonomist because you're acknowledging that we want to see God's will done, God's word obeyed, God's principles put into practice, God's laws respected, not just in the eternal order of things and certainly not just in heaven now, but also on earth. No tyrant wants to hear that. No status tyrant wants to hear that. But throughout the scripture, there's a declaration of Christ's lordship. And the mistake that the anti-theonomist movement makes is failing to think through the implications of Jesus' claim to be king of kings and lord of lords over heaven and earth. Chris, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says that we're, you know, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, in, the, in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, meaning ultimate, the king of kings, because he acknowledges kings, but he's the king of the kings, and the Lord of lords. Again, this is not some eschatological reality. This is eschatologically true, but it's also presently true. There are, there are many that ha they haven't thought through they haven't thought through what the lordship and kingship of Christ means right now. Many years ago, there was a, a debate around lordship salvation, whether, and even, even that, I think people were talking past each other. Some were suggesting, oh, the lordship salvation can't believe so you have to accept Jesus as Lord and completely turn your life over to him in order to be saved. No, there's this basic notion that if you are a truly blood-bought, born-again believer, you're going to surrender yourself to his rule over your life, period. It's as simple as that. And if you do not surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, but you've professed to be justified, you're probably not. Like fruit is a necessary and inevitable byproduct of a truly transformed life. You're not saved by works. You're not justified by works of the law. But once you've been justified by God's exclusive grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, of course you're going to submit and want to submit yourself to his kingly rule. Mm -hmm. Well, when we pray... Uh, in passages like, you know, Matthew 28, all authority, Jesus, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. All authority. What's that inclusive of? Everything. We're acknowledging that as theonomic thinkers, that the, the authority of Christ's authority is a claim, not just to authority over his church. That's not what it says. All authority in heaven and earth. It doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth where churches exist. It doesn't say that he's the king of kings and lord of lords only within the four walls of the church, mm -hmm. only within your Protestant reformed denominations. He doesn't say that. He's the king of the earth. And again, I find it hilarious that Romans 13 has been used by so many anti-theonomists and pro-statist churches to suggest that the modern church has a responsibility to submit to every edict the government makes because that's what it means to be submissive to the governing authorities. Like, I don't know what Romans 13 you're reading. I'm not sure if you're reading it in the New World Translation or your own translation. I, I look at it, oh, I've read it over and over and over again. And it's as, as, as clear as day to me that we are to submit to the governing authorities insofar as they are functioning in the way that God has chosen them to function, mm -hmm. which is as rulers that are not to terrorize us, but for to, who reward good conduct. This, these are the, we don't need to be afraid, the text tells us in verse three, to anyone who's in authority, if they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And so we do what's right to get their approval. And then the text says, for he is God's servant for your good. So if he's not for your good, if he's killing you, or if he's telling you, you cannot gather in obedience to scripture to worship God. Oh, but we can go to BLM rallies. The same people telling us we can't go to church are going to BLM rallies, which is critically important, which demonstrates their motive is not pure. Mm-hmm. I know there are many Christians, well, they're trying to do their best. No, they're not. In their sin and depravity, they might think they're doing their best, but they're hypocrites and they're liars, mm -hmm. the statists. The Justin Trudeaus and the Doug Fords and the Joe Bidens, they're hypocrites and they are liars. 
they have violated the authority that God has placed upon them by locking down churches and keeping the, the booze stores open, by locking down churches and attending BLM rallies, by locking down churches and attending indigenous funerals because they perceive church as being non-essential. That's their language. And these things is essential or politically correct. Yeah. Right. So we're not going to, you know, people have heard me talk about these issues before, but the point I want to make is one of the dangers of theonomy is it wrecks, it wreaks havoc on statism, which is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you're not a theonomist then you're essentially, whether you like this language or not, you're essentially denying the Lordship of Jesus Christ over his creation. And it belongs to him. I want to remind everybody Every marriage belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Every life, every life belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has a claim to authority over every pagan, every atheist, agnostic, every heterosexual, homosexual, every state. He, he claims authority over you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the eternal son. I find that honestly comforting in many ways knowing that uh, god has authority over all things however it does challenge us especially on an individual level especially for christians perhaps that want to keep their faith private so maybe you could speak to that how does theonomy hinder that yeah well theonomy forces the church out of hiding to engage in the world around them if our viewpoint is that the purpose of the gospel is just to get get our fire insurance, make sure we don't go to hell and get us to heaven and the sooner the better. And that's the sum total of the gospel. It's just, it's essentially our escape plan. Then in the here and now, why, why are we here? What is, are we just waiting around for God to justify a few more? Well, we are in part waiting for God to call all of his elect unto himself. But at the same time, if you explore, for example, the ministry of Jesus, while he was preaching repentance, he was also engaging what we would call culture. He actually would walk over to blind people and heal them. Why? Why not just save them and leave them blind? Why not just say, hey, repent of your sins, put your faith in me and enjoy the rest of your life as a blind person. I'll, I'll see you in my eternal kingdom. No, he, he, the gospel is not just, the gospel has an effect and impact upon the material world. Mm-hmm as God has put all things under the authority of Christ and he's working out his plan to redeem, uh, to redeem creation. And if, if, if our mindset is simply that the gospel is our escape plan and the world is burning, let it burn, the quicker it burns, the better, then we're just going to hide inside our walls and, give each other theological massages and minister to one another. Whereas from a theonomic viewpoint, it forces you out into culture to, to call out abortionists, to call out baby murderers is what they are. It means you will stand for creational marriage and sexuality. I remember back around 2005 when they were legalizing same-sex marriage in our own country and there were Christians who were saying, look, it's not a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. Like we don't like it, but it's not a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. So who cares if lost people, two guys, two dudes marry each other? Like it's not right. They're saying it's not right, but who cares? Because if we promote, let's say, heterosexual marriage and, and create laws where they can't marry one another, well, all we're doing is moralizing them and they are going to die in their sins anyway as heterosexuals now. So what's the point? Well, I think now we see the point. Uh, when you legalize sodomy, same-sex marriage, it the the movement grows like a, a mushroom overnight in a manure pile. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's homosexuals everywhere. And all of a sudden, there's people transitioning genders everywhere. And all of a sudden, the schools are flying the flag. And all of a sudden, our little children are having drag queens invited into their kindergarten class to talk to them about gender and sexuality, all laced with immorality, uh, hedonism, various godless ideologies. So because 
because we didn't do a sufficient job in speaking out against that in 2005, it's mushroomed mm -hmm. and we have all sorts of lives being destroyed because we permitted a lie. Why? Why do we permit the lie as Christians? I'm not speaking about all Christians, but yeah. many. Because we believed the lie that the gospel is just about getting people to heaven. Mm -hmm. Obviously, again, sometimes I repeat myself because I do not want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that if you bring God's laws to bear in culture that everyone's suddenly saved. No. I believe in salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, period. And I will add the word alone. I'm not a Catholic. I'll add the word alone. Mm -hmm. The sola of the reformations and the reformation, I should say. So it, it means we, we speak out against stuff like that for the good of all. It means we speak out against poor stewardship. It, you know, it, here's the thing as we, See, many of us are very suspicious of this whole climate change movement because we know what it's tied to the neo-pagan ideologies of the world, this pagan utopianism where you can fix the world. Mm -hmm. But no thinking Christian is going to say, oh, it's a good idea to go and dump your motor oil in a lake. Just dump it in a lake. Who cares? Just pollute the lake. No, obviously, when I was a kid and we would walk at a church or through the grocery store with my mom and I was, you know, three foot tall or whatever, and you got these big old gas guzzling cars that people had started up to warm up in the winter. And you're, you're walking through these plumes of smoke, you know, coughing and hacking and all this disgusting pollution. I'm thankful that that doesn't happen in parking lots anymore, that we have, ha we have better technologies. So our cars don't have that kind of uh, pollution spewing out of the, the tailpipe. I, I was in China, I think in around 2000, five 2006 on a couple occasions teaching in the underground church and i mean talk about wearing masks I mean, you'd want to wear a mask there i didn't have one but i wish i did as soon as you step off the airplane the entire week or two that you're there your throat's burning in beijing mm -hmm. because of the soot from the coal furnaces so no thinking person who has a proper biblical view of stewardship would say you know green technologies are, are bad but we, we, it's nice to have a, a cleaner environment to live in, of course, but it doesn't rattle our cage like it does the neo-pagans because we're not, we're not, we're not looking for a utopian world apart from God. It's not what we're looking for. And again, we know that God is, we know that we're in a broken world and there's going to be death and there's going to be disease, but we have resurrection hopes. So we don't live in fear of it. So there's a balance there. Yeah. And by bringing a biblical view, let's say, of stewardship back in a culture, you you create that balance. You you you're able to steward the world without unnecessarily destroying things, but you're not going to take it so far like we're seeing with the climate change activists, where they're Jane Goodall, the the ape lady, makes this comment to the effect, you know, essentially, it'd be better if the if fifty percent of the population wasn't here to save the planet. That's a very godless viewpoint and God's laws, God's words, the theonomic viewpoint fixes a lot of that, those errors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is a challenge. Like it's not obviously popular to speak the truth uh, publicly. I know that's part and part of the reason why we don't want to do it. We might uh, think hide behind a reason like, well, we're not saved by works, but then really it's the, the uh, prophets of old were treated not great when they told God's truth. And similarly today, when you speak the truth, even about simple things like adultery or living common law or these kind of things that um, can also become even socially acceptable within the church, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So some will say theonomy is their antithesis to the gospel because it stresses works. You've already rebutted that a bit, but can you speak a little bit more? How would you rebut that? Yeah, well, that's that's almost like saying once you're saved, that works have no place in a Christian's life or something like that. That let's just so if an individual Christian who has been saved by the merits of Jesus Christ and merits of Jesus Christ alone, then can't find any place for works in the Christian life, they're they're gonna live in sin, which may be a manifestation of not saved in the first place. Works have a place in our lives. It's just, they don't have the place of meriting our salvation, but they have a place works of the, the works, Christ, 
Christ did not come to take the law, the corpus of God's revealed scripture, the principles that pertain to life and worship, the Ten Commandments and all the other commands, and just throw them out. To f- he fulfilled them through his perfect, impeccable application and living out of those laws. Something that we are not capable of doing. So again, I stress that we are not capable of being saved by works of the law, but once we've been saved and the merits of Jesus, the perfect merits of Jesus have been applied to us in our justification, we will seek to be obedient. We will demonstrate the fruits of the spirit as an inevitable and necessary byproduct of a transformed life, of regeneration, of being born again. So there's a place for it. Now, the question is, what's the place of law, works, God's principles in culture? Not for salvation. I'll stress it again. But it is, it, it's beneficial to preach truth, even to lost people, because it protects them from harm. But the other purpose is, very personally, it awakens them more fully to their own sin. It awakens them more fully to their own sin. Obviously, the Holy Spirit does the work that we can't in people's lives by convicting them. But John the Baptist, for example, preached repentance in the public realm. He preached it in the public realm. Uh, Jesus was kind, but he identified the Samaritan woman's sin. He wasn't super confrontational with her because there was a there appears to be a certain spiritual openness in her to that that dialogue that he was having with her. But when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman, he he doesn't he doesn't pretend not to know that she'd been married five times and now was living with yet another man. He he acknowledges her sin. So this idea that we 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 know this as preachers, when people come into our churches and we're preaching a call to conversion. We remind people that the reason why they need to be saved is because they're sinners and they have broken God's laws. And we often list those. These are the cowardice is a sin. Covetousness is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Well, we've done a terrible job of preaching that outside the four walls of our church. I mean, Christians go to work and they interact day by day with individuals who are living with their girlfriends, who are smoking and token and getting high who are drunks who curse and blaspheme they don't say anything because they're like well i don't want this person to think salvation's by works it's not by works but when you preach sin when you say brother that is a sin you don't use the name lord's name in vain and when i say brother i'm not talking about a spiritual brother just some i'm just using the illustration of a guy you might be standing beside in the line at work you say man that's sin it it awakens them to their need for sin because the world's doing a really good job of convincing people they're not sinners. Mm-hmm. I've had people, younger men in particular, I remember years ago, this young guy, we led him to Christ. He's like, I used to go to strip clubs. I never knew that was a sin. Wow. No one ever told me. It's like, what? Well, deep down in his conscience, he must have known, but he, no one had ever said, watching naked women in a strip club is a sin. It's like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And there's other examples of people that have never been, what? Living together is a sin? Sex before marriage is a sin? Yeah, it's a sin. So when we preach God's laws, God's word into, into culture, it, it's, the pre, it's the precursor to this gospel of grace and mercy. What do you need grace for? Because you're a sinner. Why do you need mercy? Because you're, you're going to be damned. Why do you need Jesus? Because you can't, earn your own salvation. So we don't we don't just try to go moralize people for the sake of moralizing them, although there's a, v- a value to that because it does protect human life and whatnot, but we also do it as part of our proclamation of the gospel. So what would you say then are some of the other dangers of theonomy? We've talked about the danger to status, danger to the individual. Um, what are some of the other dangers? Well, another danger is that it forces people to think about, it forces people out of laziness. A lot of people like to be lazy and they don't want to think about the structures of culture, society, state. They're, they're lazy. And theonomy is a danger to laziness. 
it challenges laziness. It eradicates laziness. It forces people to think about principled structures. What are the principled structures that we should have in a culture? What are the principled structures? I mean, a lot of people don't even think about structure in their own church, but what are the principled structures we should have in culture to ensure, for example, that people are being treated properly in a judicial system? What are the principled structures that we should have and uh, laws that we should have in place to make sure that taxes aren't abused? Tax, for a lot of the taxes we pay today, they're not taxes at all, they're fines. When you go to the gas pump and you fill up at $2 a liter, which for our American friends is close to $8 a gallon Canadian, when you fill up, two bucks a liter. And it was above that a little while ago. I think it's around what a buck 80 or something now, mm. but, and you, and they have put a carbon tax on that. Well, that tax isn't being used to buy carbon. It's not being used to get rid of carbon. That's what taxes are for. They're supposed to be to, to pay for something that's a benefit to a, a nation or a nation state or municipality. It's a penalty. It's a fine. It's being called a tax, but it's actually a fine to punish you so that you won't drive your car as far. And it's it's immediate and it's strict and it's ruthless and it just keeps climbing and it's feel like you can't do anything about it. Hmm. So principle. God's law puts principled structures on states so that they can't abuse their authority. So if there's taxation, a, a proper state would say, okay, we, we believe in taxation. We want to pay our taxes. And obviously there's going to be little things the government spends money on that we might not like, but a principled uh, government whose taxation systems acknowledge God's laws, for example, certainly wouldn't be collecting quote unquote taxes from their citizens to kill babies, to pay for transgender surgeries, mm -hmm. to fine people until they comply with whatever ideology is being put out there. And it would also say to, it would also green light citizens to say that if these kinds of taxes are being imposed, we have the, we have the obligation and right to speak back. It would put constraints upon governments that want to just invade some other nation because they want to expand their territory because it would, it would, you know, we believe in, in God's word because of Babel that there's, there's boundaries that God has put in place and you can't just go and steal other people's property. So we believe in nationhood. It would put boundaries on marriage. So it's in the, it's in the best interest of every culture to acknowledge marriage because it's the foundation of all other structures within culture marriage, married people turn into families, families forge states, you know, all the business structure, I'm not saying the individuals can't, but it's the basis of reproduction and the stability of a, a, a state is often tied to its families. So it's in the best interest of a state to acknowledge marriage. The question is, what is marriage? Well, God's law puts boundaries on that. Now, marriage is pretty much anything you want. So you can be couple dudes, three dudes, four dudes, couple girls, couple girls and a guy. I mean, where's this going to go? An eight-year-old, an 88-year-old? And no length of commitment. And I mean, it sounds yeah. crazy, but a goat and a human male, like where does this end? Mm -hmm. Well, if, if there's no basis of it, it's just whatever crazy idea people come up with in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's leading this isn't conspiratorial talk. It's happening before our eyes where people's views are being softened to, to accept any definition of marriage and God's laws put, put boundaries on those things. So that's, that's where theonomy is also dangerous. It's dangerous to those that are lazy and don't want to think about societal structures that don't, don't want to think about what marriage actually is. Don't want to think about how the, the state should be, um, structured. Mm -hmm. Now I know it's also dangerous to other people, people that may even find themselves in a camp similar to ours. And so maybe you want to chat about that. So we've been to many rallies. Let's talk to my freedom fighting buddies out there. Uh, I am so thankful to have met many, many people over the past couple of years at different rallies and protests that are speaking out against medical coercion and the mandates and people from 
different Christian backgrounds, people from non-Christian backgrounds, frankly, even people from anti-Christian backgrounds that are championing freedom. I, I have a I have a certain appreciation for their stance, but I think it's pretty evident to most thinking Christians that there's a pretty large group of people out there that want freedom from government tyranny in order to promote their own radical self autonomy. Mm -hmm. So they, they would be like the modern flower power crowd, anarchists, anything goes. I don't want anybody telling me what to do in any area of life. When they say my body, my choice, they're not promoting a robust biblical view of personal bodily autonomy and stewardship. They want the right to murder children and whatnot. So there was a freedom fighter in, in our own community that was very vocal. He friended me on fa Facebook, share some of my stuff. And, you know, he was speaking out against the tyranny, the coercion, the forced vaccinations and whatnot. But as soon as that kind of started to throttle down this summer and all of a sudden Roe v. Wade happened and I mm -hmm. spoke out against abortion, he's like, this is where we part ways. And he, he, he deleted me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because his worldview is per the purpose of him fighting for freedom is very different than my purpose. Yep. So what theonomy does is it also offends freedom fighters who want autonomy meaning self-law. So by the way, mm -hmm. theonomy, mm -hmm. God's law, autos, namas, self-law. If you reject theonomy, on some level, you're automatically buying into autonomy. And we believe in a, a, a certain measured level of autonomy within the boundaries of God's revealed word, but not radical autonomy. So theonomy offends the radical autonomists who are largely anarchists who who want freedom that who want freedom to make destructive choices. Mm -hmm. And historic Christian peoples have been pro-government. We 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 do actually believe in a government. So our vision is not no police. We're not a defund the police uh kind of people. We want police functioning as God has intended officers of that ilk to function. We're not anarchists. We're not anti-government. We're not anti-science. We're not anti-medicine, but we want boundaries to be put in place in these institutions and persons so they can function properly. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the roots of the anti-theonomic worldview, because yeah. where does that really come from? I think, Chris, that I smell a little bit of Gnosticism in the anti-theonomic crowd. And what I mean by that is, if it's true that at its most basic level, and again, there's going to be different kinds of theonomists, but if it's true on the most basic level that theonomy is saying we care about the material world, we care about the structures of state. We care about the institution of the family. <clears throat> we care about jurisprudence. And we, we really believe that God's laws, God's word are the best boundaries for those institutions and structures. The opposite is we don't really care about the material world. We just want to get to heaven. The material world doesn't matter. Structures and culture doesn't matter. Yeah, we don't like homosexual marriage, but we don't really care enough to say anything. We just preach salvation, preach John 3.16. You're actually guilty of a version of Gnosticism the early Gnostics essentially poo-pooed the material world, just that the immaterial was considered pure and good, and that which is material is just useless. Well, that you know that's been denounced time and time again. That radical Gnostic dualism as as false teaching that God created us in a physical environment. That I'm not just a an immaterial entity. I have a material body and, the, and the, God's value on the material is displayed in the fact that there will be a new heavens and new earth and that we will have resurrected bodies. We won't be disembodied beings floating on clouds, plucking on harps, that 
God is working to redeem the material and the immaterial world. I know there's different views as to how that, uh, you know, is going to precisely, pardon the pun, flesh itself out. <laughs> but I, um, the anti-theonomic movement, I'll call it that, I'm not even sure if it's a movement. I think it's sort of been the de facto viewpoint for many at its roots, I would say is, is a bit of a Gnostic gospel and then it, it limits the reign of God and the value that God places on things to the immaterial world. So the, the, um, a, a true anti-theonomist would be like, who cares about the world? We're just getting people ready for heaven. I see that even on posts when I, I'll, I'll put a post out on Facebook or Twitter about, some crazy thing a politician said or some new law that passed. And you'll hear people saying, well, I'll just preach the gospel. Just mm. preach repentance. Come Lord Jesus, come. Hopefully he's coming soon. Okay, like I, I get it. I, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I think you're not seeing the big picture of God's design to bring about, to redeem us in such a way that, in, in the eternal kingdom, we will not, again, we will not be living in a disembodied state. We will live in a material world. And we pray that the Lord, the, that the kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven, that the kingly reign of Christ, what else can the kingly reign of Christ mean if it doesn't mean that his laws and rules are being acknowledged? So Jesus, Jesus was obviously wonderful at this. He brought truth to bear on the realities of life, disease, suffering, sinful relationships. So it's not like, well, do I, do I believe in the true gospel or do I have to be a theonomist? You, you need to find a way to, to, to reconcile in your own mind that God is a God of grace and mercy that justifies us by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But he is present tense, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he expects Every married couple, every state, every church, every citizen to abide by his laws. Again, will they ever do so perfectly? No, not even believers do that. But they do, they do form the boundaries, the skeletal structure to nation states. And if we don't start to bring God's word, God's laws back into culture, we're actually contributing to the chaos the confusion, the ignorance, the loss of life, and the lies hmm. that people are regularly being fed. And so this is why we, we, we want uh, people to be more bold in advocating for the things of God, not just within the church, but in society as a whole. And um, so I think that's, that's kind of what I wanted to communicate. And the reason why we entitled this episode, the dangers of theonomy, because it is a danger to pagans. It's a danger to secularists. It's a danger to the pro-abortionists, to the, uh, the radical egalitarians. It's a, it's a danger to those that would say marriage is whatever you want. It's a danger to the, radical my body my choice crowd but it's a blessing uh to the world and can be a blessing to the world if it's properly understood and applied well thank you aaron for sharing that lots to to uh listen to and to think about in that uh this episode here a reminder to our listeners where you can find this podcast you uh, can find it on the cjxc radio canada's constant christian companion as well as on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network and their app where you can download the app and listen to this podcast. You can also hear us over on our website there, harvestwindsor.ca. You can find the, the podcast there along with some others. And hopefully you'll be able to tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.